welcome. welcome! Welcome back everyone to Love's Neighbours Watch, hopefully your favourite pop culture, women's focused podcast. I say this every time. I think the more people hear you say it, the more likely it is that it will be true. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> That's the master plan. Yeah, um, I'm Hannah. I'm Francesca. Yep, and we're two 20-somethings, emphasis on somethings, uh, <laughs> living in London, um, absorbing uh, everything we can about pop culture and entertainment, always women-focused, if we can, because we are women, we support women, there we go. That's <laughs> yeah. as far as we go. And this week, um, our main topic, uh, I think, is a movie that very much encompasses those themes. In mm-hmm. fact, it epitomises those themes, you yeah. could say. Um, it is the movie Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, the French film by Celine Schiama. Schiama. Yes, we were, <laughs> we're not quite sure how to say her name. Yeah, we were debating whether or not she it was a French or Italian heritage last name, because that could change the pronunciation. And that's as far as we know about that. Yeah, but she is a, an acclaimed French director um, who has... I, this is her fourth film, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie is about a um, painter in the 18th century who goes and is... Well, she's assigned the the job of painting a young woman who's due to be married. Mm -hmm. And this portrait that she's going to paint of her is going to be sent to her betrothed. Yes. um, In a sort of, you know... um, Transactional manner. Um, And it's sort of about what it is like for her to try and paint this portrait of a woman unwilling to go ahead with her fate and then what how the relationship grows and there's a lot of stuff about sort of feminine relationships and friendships as well not just amorous relationships um in kind of pre-revolutionary France um so we're going to talk about that um and uh then we're also going to go into our customary sort of chat chit chat at the end I actually read a um I read an interesting little kind of tweet the other day that was saying that like there is a, a grammatical reason that we don't we we put the i sound like chit chat flip flop that kind of thing before in the first syllable rather than the second and in English it's just like makes no grammatical sense for us to say flop flip or chat chit <laughs> there's a grammatical reason for it oh, I can't remember what it is but yeah so the chit chat will come last <laughs> yeah but first of all yeah let's get into portrait of a lady on fire. So this film um, is, it has been talked about since it came out because it is just incredibly striking. Mm. It's um, beautifully shot, uh, filmed, uh, I believe, in Brittany where it was where it's set. Yeah. Um, you know the vibrant blues and the crashing waves, mm. um, and then the very beautifully kind of aesthetic and. Um, almost minimalistic sets um, yes. of the house uh, where a lot of the action takes place. Mm. I mean, really, there are just kind of two settings, either the house or the Yeah, beach. absolutely. So you could definitely think, um, if you've seen it, um, God's Own Country, for example, a film that we loved yeah. in terms of the land and the house are, are the settings and they're also the boundaries and the restrictions for the characters and mm. for the story. Um, I would also say something like um, Call It By Your Name in terms of how the... Uh, landscape and the setting impact the story are also very important it's also an important theme i mean they're both um queer films as this film also happens to be but i think um it's an artistic and stylistic choice that works very well um and the film itself to say was released in the uk on friday so last friday um and it has been around in the film sorry in the film festival circuit and i Mm. think on international screens for a few months now it was submitted um at Cannes for the palm door yeah, and um, it won the uh, Queer Palm mm-hmm. um, in recognition of, yeah, well, what, what, what a great 
film it is I mean I think it has been as you say like talked about a lot mm. over the past couple of months mm. and you know British audiences were so excited to finally have it hit our big screens yeah and absolutely um so uh, it is genuinely, I mean, we have a good history of liking these styles of films. I mean, yeah. Gods and Country, we loved. Call Me By Your Name, we loved. I mean, I remember when we went to see Call Me By Your Name, we went to see it based on the fact that we'd enjoyed God's Own Country, mm-hmm. which is quite funny now because I think, obviously, Call Me By Your Name sort of hit the stratosphere in a way that God's Own Country didn't, which mm-hmm. is not to say that uh, the the first film wasn't also very successful in its own way yes. um, and very well thought of. But, but yeah, I think... Um, Another way in which, you know, there's a similarity in those three movies Mm -hmm. is the way that the the love affair that becomes the central piece uh, builds kind of slowly. And as you say, very much in sync with the landscape. Um, Yes. And but it's always kind of there's this um, this time limit, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of established from the beginning in this movie. Eloise, um, who is the uh, the young woman who's being painted, mm-hmm. asks um, the painter, the woman who's come and who's painting her, yeah, who, she's, who she's forming the relationship mm-hmm. with, Marianne, she asks her how long um, she's going to stay. And she says six days. Mm-hmm. And then later on, there's another time limit put upon it where the mother disappears for like four days. Mm-hmm. So you've always got that kind of time limit. And I think that's very similar to Call Me By Your Name. With where the summer. You know, it's just going to be the summer. Or and, God's Own Country when it is the, the the lambing season, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In God's Own Country, spoiler alert, he does come back. It's a happy ending, a happy which ending. is so nice. But um, which, in these movies, yeah. well, I think, that, again, I don't want to go too deep into this like comparison before we even really discuss the film. But mm-hmm. I do think there's a similarity in terms of like this love affair teaching them something about themselves yeah. and helping them almost like be stronger going forward and it's not like a straight up tragedy the fact that they aren't together at the end yeah absolutely and i think that is definitely a theme shared across um queen by your name and um uh, not god's own country because it's a happy ending through queen by your name and um, portrait of a lady on fire it's sort of like the redeeming um power of the love shared in the film um and of the sort of great memory it creates for the characters um so to go into a a really quick um summary um beyond what we've already said um essentially uh marianne the painter is brought to this 18th century french house um where only three women seem to live um the mother eloise the um well the portrait no the the um titular portrait (laughs) (laughs) eloise the poser the um subject and then there's also a maid um and she's brought there to paint marry paint eloise because eloise is going to be sent off into marriage and the suitor needs a portrait of her to prove you know anne of cleave style that she's not hideously ugly um and then obviously eloise is very unwilling to have a portrait painted because the portrait itself represents her sail into marriage as she basically sees it as um and the other women in the film see it like that too they're just more resigned to it yeah the mother included like the mother um you know whilst she's certainly not letting Eloise not get married Mm -hmm. um you know that's never even really discussed it's more like this is her fate and and I think she's conscious of like how do I make this as smooth as possible for Mm -hmm. her because Mm -hmm. what um, she asks Marianne to do is to paint her but not actually tell her she's going to paint her mm-hmm. and instead um, you know spend time with her go for long walks on the cliffs um, stare and at her face while her you do so <laughs> very, in a very deep amorous way um, and uh, there, thereby be able to paint a portrait that evokes mm-hmm. her presence mm-hmm. so in that sense like the mother is you know being quite kind and that she's like that's something that 
you know, Eloise will find more comfortable, even though in its own way it is a deception. Yes. Um, I think it is coming from a place of, like, appreciating that the constraints of having to sit for a portrait, for example, which, you know, is, is something that... Takes not, a long yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. It's not, like, a comfortable experience. Um, yeah, so the mother is accepting of that. And, and as you said, the, ma- the maid, obviously, she is, like, a different, a different situation. She's not in a position to speak out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do get the sense that she... Well, she ha- well, we'll talk about her later, but she has her own stuff going on. But I think, um, yeah, you get the sense that everybody is somewhat, like, I suppose, like accepting, but also mm-hmm. frustrated, like quietly frustrated by the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And then from there, you have the sort of first portion of the film, which is very, think we're very much concerned with the deceit of Eloise by her mother and by the maid and by Marianne the painter. Um, and increasingly Marianne is becoming uncomfortable with the tasks she's been given because with all this staring at Eloise, Eloise is kind of slightly rightly getting the idea that like Marianne is staring at her for specific reasons, aka amorous reasons. <laughs> um, and they talk a bit about their lives and there's this moment such as when uh, Marianne plays Eloise music, which she hasn't really ever heard before out of a religious setting. Um, moments where they grow close and they start to realise that they have something to, they have sort of life to give one another. Um, and then there's this middle moment where Marianne destroys the first painting she makes of Eloise and then tells um, Eloise basically um, what's been going on mm. and then strikes a bargain with the mother saying, I'll paint you another one. It'll be better, I swear. And Eloise promises to pose for Marianne because she obviously sees something different in the fact that Marianne has confessed rather than just going on with her life. And then increasingly, in a very sensual manner, which, as Francesca will tell you later, did not completely impress the French, <laughs> um, their relationship begins to grow and they become like romantically and sexually involved with one another. And they help the maid out with some personal issues. Um, they attend a bonfire at one point, which is the moment where Eloise's dress catches on fire you know, the portrait of a lady on mm. fire, which is this sort of metaphor for perhaps the um, inescapability of her fate in Marianne's eyes and mm. the wish to save her. Um, and then the film kind of comes to a close with this sort of comparison of the two of them with the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is a story which most people might know where Orpheus goes into the underworld, the Greek underworld, to save his beloved Eurydice and is told that he can leave with her ghost um, if he doesn't turn around and look at her on the way out. And he does. And then they are both lost. Um, and the idea that Marianne, by turning back after Eloise or by trying to do anything to save her, is only going to kind of spell her fate even more. And at the end, we sort of have the closing of what could be a tragic, but also in some ways still romantic story where they don't get to be together. And Marianne, goes, sorry, Eloise goes off to her fate and Marianne becomes a famous painter. And, you know, they cross paths a few times in Milan. But other than that, mm. that's the end. Um, which in some ways, coined by her name, is similar in that there is no guarantee and there is no escape from what the the, the divergence of the two main characters' paths. Yeah, um, and I think um, the final scene um, of, of this movie, Portrait mm. of a Lady on Fire, um, is Marianne observing Eloise um, at the theatre mm-hmm. uh, where they are both listening to a recital of the music that she played earlier in the film. Mm, which is Vivaldi's Summer. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, you see the camera kind of gets close, closer and closer on Eloise's face and you see her emotional journey as she listens to the mm-hmm. music, uh, which, you know, I feel kind of spans the the, the whole spectrum from 
excitement to despair mm-hmm. uh, to kind of a degree of hope at the end of like she sort of smiles and you mm-hmm. have this feeling that she's remembering exactly what you said remembering the happiness that she had mm-hmm. and that I thought was also quite similar to call me by your name you know mm-hmm. the end when he has um just been on the phone with Oliver and then sits in front of the fire and and, and, and yeah and you sort of see you know he sort of has the tear but you feel like happy you feel like there's not I mean arguably call me by your name is a more optimistic ending because it's that closer to the present day so yeah. you feel like and they, you know they have more change, freedom yeah. than the characters do in this film uh but it's still what i think this is an interesting point actually that like we were talking about this a bit about this before the recording mm-hmm. how much the movie is contextualized in its setting as you know of the 18th century france mm-hmm. um, because it is a period drama um but it's not a period drama where the audience receives any context about that period aside from what you're shown you know you're not told anything yeah. extra there's no kind of beginning being like we are in you know yeah i mean this... most reviews we read said it's pre-revolutionary france and that's all you know yeah which i don't think i even necessarily would have picked up on that if i was just watching it no, i yeah, have thought it was much later no famous characters no famous dates it's just a piece it's just they're minor nobles living in a part of france pre-revolution because there are still nobles and that's all you really need to know yeah so the way in which the characters are restrained to their fates uh, you know, arguably is the way in which it's both kind of very specific to mm-hmm. them and it's also presented in quite a kind of universal way. Mm-hmm. And I think the love story is like that too. Like, obviously, it's very specific to um, the two of them uh, uh, and obviously the fact that they're women and the fact that they're, one of them is engaged to be with someone else. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also presented in this kind of, like, universal way, which mm-hmm. I think, again, the same kind of in Call Me By Your Name is specific to their situation, but it's almost like a portrait of, like, this is what love is. Like, mm-hmm. there's this moment in this movie, um, portrait of a lady on fire, where um, Eloise says to Marianne, oh, do all lovers feel this way, as mm-hmm. if they're inventing something? Yeah. Um, and I think the the sort of themes and, and um comments that are made in the movie i feel like are generally more sort of yeah like yeah. that more general than no, like specific i definitely agree with you i i have read some reviews um you know as we, as ever we do our market research and our due diligence by looking at a bunch of mm. reviews and seeing what people have said and across the board people have liked this movie because it yeah. was well made beautiful color palette you know the symbolism and the symmetry very easy to understand to be honest with you um you know it's cleverly done and it's simple um, but some of them, the ones that I think didn't completely understand the film, in my, from my perspective, were kind of commenting on the fact that it was forbidden love, right? Eloise and Marianne, are for, they have forbidden love, and that's one of the cruxes of the movie. That's the, the driving force, you know, um, the thing that makes it sexy, for example, is the fact that it's forbidden because of the fact they're both women. But actually, I don't really find that contextualised by the movie um, because there are no people telling them that women, a, a love between women is wrong. Um, there is no sort of like claiming pitchforks or like presentations of other, you know, queer people in that time period as being demonised or hurt. You know, they live in this very safe world where the only thing that's actually going to threaten their relationship is the fact that she's engaged to someone else. Man or not man. Um, so for me, I definitely think that something that Call Me By Your Name also did, the stakes of Oliver and Elio's relationship were not that it was man on man. It no. was that he was older, Elio was younger, Oliver was engaged. Yeah. And, you know, the impact of what other people would, of who their relationship would hurt. And I think Marianne and Eloise, I mean, Eloise herself definitely seems to think from what, I, what she says in the film, that like the problem of her relationship with, Marianne is not that she's a woman it's that who will hurt if 
you know, they do what Marianne expresses to want halfway through the film and, you know, I don't know, run away together or something. Because mm. it will hurt, like, her mother and, you know, her family chances. And she's like, why do you, do you want me to feel guilty for being complicit? You know, do you want me to do something? And then Marianne's like, no, I don't. So, yeah, I think as an important thing to make, important contextualization to make about the film is that it's not, in my opinion, trying to make a sweeping statement or a loud statement that you know, love was, this kind of love was particularly forbidden, or the reason that this film's important is because it's trying to sort of, like, rehabilitate the woman-on-woman relationship. It's more trying to just show their relationship as love and as by threatened by the same kind of problems that, like, any relationship might be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, and, and I think just, I would say that because of its heavy decont- decontextualization. Like, the only yeah. thing you know is that they're in Brittany, someone, they, they go to Milan at one point, um, and that's about it. Yeah, so uh, I completely agree with that. Mm. Um, and I think that was a really interesting choice by the director. Um, but I do also think it, yeah, it has this kind of fresh contemporary feel, mm-hmm. um, which is very much like the actors themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, both of them are, uh, you know, very beautiful, but have this kind of contemporary look. Yeah. Like, and I don't, it's hard to describe, but like, it's maybe it's I think partly it's the eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that's it. And also, like, the directness of the gaze. Yes. You know, neither of them are submissive or kind of um, meek in their behavior mm. at any point. And neither is the maid, really, either. Like, everybody feels like somebody you could know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that the way the costumes are very simple. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, the house is simple. So, the the period finery I think is kind of stripped back somewhat um and that also adds to that feeling of like you are just watching a film about human behavior and Mm -hmm. life rather than a film about this is what as you say this is what it was like in the 18th century in Brittany yeah yeah because for me some of the commentary that I read was like obviously in 18th century France gay people were banned and would be horribly murdered if they were found out. And obviously it was restrictive on women. And obviously, you know, the only reason these women had any opportunity to speak or look, to speak to or look at each other or express their own opinions is because there are no men around. And I'm like, actually, that's a bit reductive. I mean, there are growing studies, historical studies academically that show that there were actually sort of some people recorded that had relatively modern, I say modern with air quotes, attitudes mm. to, you know, um, to homosexual relationships. I mean, they found a diary by an 18th century farmer who was writing about, you know, someone he knew who was gay or maybe it was, no, he was writing about a sermon he'd heard that was saying homosexuality was a sin and he, he wrote that he didn't understand why. And that was a normal lay farmer mm. in like 18th century Britain. So for me, you know, the film t- being taken out of its, con- of, the, of, the, of the historical politics and being more about like two young women who were dressed in a simple way and could really be anywhere... Um, they could be anybody really falling in love with one another despite the stakes and, you know, treating it more as a summer romance or a happy fleeting two weeks, which they'll remember fondly, is something which is the film does deliberately, I think. Mm. And it it has bugged me a teeny bit that, like, some some kind of commentators have sought to really sort of, like, contextualise it as, like, a, a film that is... Um, deliberately um what's the word combat not combative in a way you know what i mean like it's being made because it's like a it's like a a message that has to be sent whilst i would say it's art and the film has been made because it was beautiful and it's a beautiful story mm. just like with calling by your name and it's great that you see more kind of like queer themes out in cinema but in the end it's also an amazingly beautiful film 
that doesn't need to be called great just because it happens to be different. You know what yeah, I mean? yeah, I know. I, I definitely get that. Um, and I think that's definitely not to say, though, that it is it is quite powerful to mm, watch of course, of course. two women in period dress yeah. being, you know, I, there were moments where they're on the beach where you're like, oh, I mean, probably the artiste wouldn't be thinking this, but you and I were probably like thinking of like Poldark or, you oh know, gosh, some, yes. uh, but seeing that with two women was very powerful in the way that, you know, watching like David Copperfield is powerful watching that film not be entirely with white, a diverse you know? cast yes so i think that there's definitely something something gratifying for audiences yes there. definitely um but yeah i also i'm always a fan of movies that you know are set in the past but mm. feel contemporary yeah and f- remind you that people who lived in the past were the same as us and were not you know completely abiding by a totally different yeah. well they might have been abiding by different societal rules but they were abiding by the same rules of like human emotion behavior. and things like and emotion, that yeah, yeah of course uh, i definitely agree with that and you're right i think it did remind me of um gosh like there was some people who were comparing it to like the um gothic um yeah. gothic sea swept kind of milieu of like rebecca or someone oh, like that as well especially because like eloise's ghost randomly turns up every now and again it's meant to be a call for the whole Orpheus eurydice thing isn't it but, but it's it very is, spooky it is yeah and and there are ways the way in which she kind of presents and holds herself is kind of ghostly at times mm. and sort of mm-hmm. ethereal but she's not ethereal at the same time like she does have this groundedness like neither of them are like ingenues you mm-hmm. know and in fact also both the actresses are um I believe kind of late 20s mm-hmm. like which you know obviously that's in no way old but it's like kind of <laughs> interesting because like it would have been easy to cast them as like 17 year olds you know absolutely completely given if you want to be historically accurate then you know um someone like Eloise probably would be quite young because yeah. she's going for her first marriage but then again someone like Marianne who is a painter taking over her father's shop uh and her father's profession and is seems well respected as a painter and you know um does her own thing um, I mean, obviously they existed, but, you know, they aren't recorded, women like that. So if we're going to be completely historically accurate, they would have existed, this film wouldn't have worked at all. So I definitely think that's one of, one of the strengths. And then, yeah, thinking about it, I do think that, like, they deliberately chose kind of actresses that are very striking. Mm. Um, Eloise, I'm sorry, her name is Adele Hainon. Hainon. Um, is, she's very striking looking. It's really interesting. Like, she has this, like, very blonde hair, but then, like, Cara de Levine level brows and yeah. she has this very elegant feminine look about her when she at the moment when she's asleep where she's very like pretty mm. and like delicate looking and then when she's you know there's sort of direct staring in this film mm. um, which arguably calls back I think to, like the male gaze versus the female and in the space in which Marianne and Eloise are inhabiting they don't have to not look at each other and I guess the directness of gazes and of staring and looking is something which is like a power that maybe you could suggest that like in this era women may not have had mm. and even today uh, women may not have as much as men so it's a you know deliberate choice by the director to have all these front shots where you see her staring and then mm. them staring at each other and you know uh, Nomi Merlon who plays Marianne already has this like striking open wide you know face about her she looks like an owl to me just where she was always but you know 
Eloise is more kind of pu- classically pretty, but then her gaze and the way her brows are, it's so striking that like gives her this power and this gravitas when she looks that a lot of her communication doesn't come from speaking and comes from the way that Eloise looks at things and people. Yeah. And that's a big part of her character. So I do think that like the choice of actress was very important and I can see why they would have chosen them too because they have a real good way of communicating and acting without too many words. Yeah, which is a definite skill. Like they're both incredibly charismatic and mm. I think another kind of interesting part of the movie um, is that there's no music yes. aside from obviously um, the Vivaldi piece that you spoke about earlier yes. which is used in a significant way but there's no kind of just like orchestral score mm-hmm. and instead it feels as though the background noises of like the fire crackling yes and people even when people sort of drop things or things are put on tables and stuff like those kind of mm. like background noises yeah. become far more significant than in like your average film Mm -hmm. which is really interesting and I think really gave it a kind of like visceral um and sensual feel because like Mm. you did kind of feel as though you were in that room with the fire crackling like I feel like I can still hear that fire crackling yeah and the silence as well Mm. is then very telling um and you everything's very bare and open which I think matches the scenery and the actual set where everything is kind of, I mean, think think like a, you know, a slightly run-down Georgian house, basically. Like, it's very bare, kind of Jane Austen-like, peeling paint, you know, that austere. Um, and I think it, the stripped-back nature means that the whole film rests on the actors and the script delivering the symbolism that um, Celine, the director, wants to deliver. Um, yeah, without the music. Because music, um, as we know from Calling By Your Name, can really drive plot and feeling and get your audience thinking what you want them to think so it definitely is a huge moment when they decide not to yeah and I, I agree that the silence I think then was very powerful because mm-hmm. for a lot of the film things are left unsaid mm-hmm. um and you don't quite know how either character is feeling mm-hmm. so I think by letting that silence kind of just sit yeah. It is quite, like, an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the maid character, um, Sophie, she's interesting for that reason too, in that obviously you expect the maid, the servant, to be quiet. And, and, uh, like, going into this movie, I knew that it was a love story. I didn't actually know, like, who, what the love, who was, you know, part of the love story. And, like, when the maid was introduced, I was like, oh, maybe it's her, you know. Um, But she um, has her own situation where she is pregnant, but we don't know any context of that, do we? They never tell you how. I mean, I guess you don't need to know how. You know how, but... um, (laughs) But, No, they don't tell you who the man was or anything. anything Um, There's no context. No. um, Except that, you know, that situation is not ideal for her position. And um, so she seeks to get that sorted. Mm -hmm. um, And the other women help her. So there's a kind of female solidarity and friendship. That is so interesting, just to cut in, sorry. Because it's completely kind of accurate, you know, pre-Enlightenment modern medicine, um, a lot of feminine healthcare was practised you know, women only. You know, women yeah. used to be the midwives delivering children. Um, and this idea, there's like this, not secretive, but there's this like furtive feminine knowledge which extends to things like abortions and, you know, um, gynecological healthcare, which we would call now, but not then. Um, I think is really important to say. And the fact that you see these women like happily on a winter's night, you know, the Sophie is like hanging from the ceiling while they're reading a book. You know, it's all very like normalised, I think, which yeah. gives a really good impression of the fact that like, yes, women you know, an abortion wasn't, you know, a, a pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy was not something that 
women wouldn't have known what to do about and there were remedies they could try and there were secret ways they could find like a wise woman to help them out you know it wasn't just like random doctors with coat hangers you know yeah and i think yeah. i mean it, some, of, some of it was but i think it's really important for them to show this like feminine knowledge and this feminine sharing of like wise methods to um get rid of children and not tell the men you know what I mean? And yes. it's normalised. And to evict women from these private protected spaces and have them dealing with things like childbirth and, you know, sex and everything like that is important because, of course, they did. Yeah, so no, the, I agree. the film does a great thing, I think, in having that storyline. Yeah, and it's it's quite it's quite subtle in mm. some ways for that exact reason in that at no point does anyone panic or express confusion as you yeah. say about what to do it's instead like okay we're going to bandy together and mm-hmm. we're going to help you yeah um and the first question that marianne asks her is do you want do you want to be pregnant do you yeah. want this baby so mm-hmm. you know there is that choice presented yeah. to her as well it's you know the women have agency in mm-hmm. how they deal with the situations that they are they are in mm-hmm. the same applies to eloise's decision to get married as you say yeah like whilst it's not really her decision as such the choice of what to do is kind of given back to her, mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And coming on to sort of going off one thing from the abortion storyline and then just jumping into sort of the history of art thing that goes through the film, I thought it was really interesting um, how... So they go along to the, like, wise woman character with Sophie to have her surgically remove the baby because things mm. like running up and down the beach and hanging from the ceiling have not worked, <laughs> surprisingly enough. <laughs> um, and they remove it just she just removes it and there's a really poignant bit where sophie is lying next to like a toddler because it's done it's yeah. this woman's public room um and the toddler's holding onto her finger and she sort of cries and it seems like not joyful but sort of resigned and peaceful um you know like she there isn't a sense of like you're, the film's not trying to make sophie look guilty it's trying to be like she's still able to feel joy and peace at the presence of a child it's just not going to work for her yeah. and then later on in the evening um uh, eloise like insists that marianne paint the scene they saw of mm. sophie laid out on the bed with the wise woman sort of sorting out her insides and i thought that's such an important thing to say too isn't it you know we're kind of this film is dealing with you know the portrayal of people in paint you know the hard copy portrayal of people like photographs but you know 18th century photographs as powerful Right, there is a, a power that Marianne has in the fact that she can paint Eloise and she is a driver of her fate. And there's also a power, Eloise seems to think, in depicting the scene they saw because otherwise it's only seen by people's eyes. It's, sorry, it's only seen in person. It's never yeah. seen otherwise. It's not depicted, it's not represented, it's not remembered. Yeah, because it wouldn't have been talked about as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think that scene, that moment where she kind of turns and is holding the baby's hand, and mm. as you say, that while the abortion's taking place, the way it's filmed, the way it just concentrates on her face, mm. it could have been the scene of a woman giving birth. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it was taken out of context. Yeah. And I think it was presented in the same way as if it had been that scene, which, yeah, yeah, was very powerful. And that's almost like, that's really a subplot of this Mm -hmm. film. Like, it's not um, the main crux, but it was, yeah, handled very well. And, and yeah, that, exactly what you just said about her, about Marianne having this power to paint, you know, the the idea of a portrait and the idea of making art does run through this film in a very significant way. And, like, 
you know, I said earlier about the the sounds, the sound of her sketching mm-hmm. uh, or her, you know, applying the paint to the canvas. Mm-hmm. Those sounds are very like you you can hear them, yeah. you know, and it's like actually it occurs on screen and you watch the painting come together, um, which I suppose could be a metaphor for you know the relationship growing or yeah. you know the uh, whatever you wanted to interpret it as. But it's also got this very like practical feel of mm-hmm. like this is a skill that she has, mm-hmm. um, this has allowed her to have something of the independence that all the characters are kind of searching for in a way that is never really explained and as you say I'm sure that there were women of that time who had that who were allowed to have that you Mm -hmm. know practice that um that profession yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. but um yeah I just I very much enjoyed that and uh, the paintings that Marianne does that Mm -hmm. you see appear on screen um were created by the painter Helene Dalmer um Mm -hmm. and uh, apparently the actress worked with her very closely to um you know replicate the the process of what it would yeah, be like to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, I th- I th- those por- those paintings were also on um, display in exhibition in Paris, apparently. So cool. Um, and they are like really beautiful and striking, like aren't they? You know, they're, mm. they're very, very lovely works of art. But um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of the film as well. Yeah, and I think it kind of brings us on to sort of the final thing that I would talk about about this film, which is itself the, the art and the painting. As you said, like it is um, Marianne's profession to be a painter. And at the end of the film, she has a painting in... Um, um, a painting inspired by Orpheus and Eurydice, Eurydice uh, in an art show. And then someone walks up to her, an little wizened man walks <laughs> yeah. up to her and is like, ooh, your father, he's painting beautifully. And then she's like, it's my painting. Uh, and she's wearing a beautiful blue cape at that point a as cape. well. <laughs> we love a good cape. Um, and it's something else, that's an idea that's also expressed earlier in the film. Um, you know, the one dip into politics that they kind of deal with is Marianne saying, oh, I don't do, I haven't officially done life model, like yeah. new painting. And Eloise is like, why? And she's like, oh, it's not, it's not allowed. Um, and then she says, it's a way that they keep us from being, us being women, from being great artists because we don't understand the male anatomy. So how can we paint mm. great things? And then she basically says, like, in her little sly way, oh, yeah, I just got around it. I did it in secret. Mm. So obviously she can still be a great artist. But it is an interesting point about women's art. That is to say that women's art is seen as less than. You know, Marianne had to submit her painting in the end and under her father's name to be considered. Um, you know, she had to work in secret um, because... Otherwise, she couldn't develop her skills in the yeah. way that she knows she has to. You know, painters can't just be naturally talented. You also have to study and do the work. And, you know, at the end, you see her leading a, a drawing class for girls. But there is still that sense that Marianne is fighting against an institution in, uh, and is part of a profession where she isn't wholly accepted. Um, and again, like this film makes space for women's gazes and makes space for women's opinions and voices, but also for like women's art and you know their and self-expression in that way I think and that's a really interesting theme of it yeah no I agree with that and I also think it's interesting that the painting that you see her do the the portrait that is being sent to Eloise's husband to be Mm -hmm. is for him like it's not for a wider audience to appreciate her art it's you know whilst obviously Marianne makes it something personal between her and Mm -hmm. Eloise it's ultimately not something she can keep um you later see her do a, a portrait for herself of um of of Eloise um and also one of herself for Eloise I'm not explaining this well but you know basically <laughs> she makes portraits for both of them to save yeah to remember one another by yeah. um we also see her do kind of slightly more abstract paintings in her own time mm-hmm. but the painting that we see her display at the end is very traditional like obviously it's again it's got this personal yeah. element to it but it, 
and and again that might have been we don't actually know that that's not Marianne's choice to paint in that way Mm -hmm. but I felt as though there was we saw what she painted in private and how she behaved in private Mm -hmm. and when we saw how she painted in public for a public setting Mm -hmm. where she was submitting it as you say under her father's name Mm -hmm. you know there was that um that separation between you know yes she is respected enough as an artist to be given a commission which is pretty great given Mm -hmm. that period but she can't actually um be unique or inventive necessarily and that's you know that's those limitations are there yeah absolutely and uh you know there's a bit in the film where she when so they go through a series of what three or so paintings i think of Mm. um eloise which in the last one um you know marianne finally feels like she's kind of got it how she would want it which is to say that she probably understands eloise the best now and sees all the sides of her she needs to see to make a good portrait yeah but she says when Eloise says she doesn't like one of them, well, there are rules and conventions I have to play by. I I can't just paint whatever I like. I have to do it certain ways. And then Eloise is like, so there's no life in it then. And I think that's an interesting comparison of their two lives. You know, as Marianne, as soon as Marianne is contested about the choices she has to make in order to survive and be an artist, parallel the things that Eloise says when she's criticised the choices she has to make in marrying this man, even if she doesn't want to, um, so it is interesting that in the, the the kind of destinies they've both chosen or the path they both have to take, they really get their hackles up when it comes to being faced with a hypocrisy that they also have to display. Um, you know, in Marianne's case, it's painting by rules, even though she yeah. professes to not really care about rules otherwise, which, you know, she doesn't. And I think there's quite an interesting parallel there with Little Women. Because, yeah. you know, the, the pursuit of art and... Um, you know obviously Amy's line about wanting to be great or nothing at all and mm-hmm. and you know the limitations that obviously she and Joe feel in mm-hmm. terms of how they can both um, succeed um, and use their talents and or, or and or should they marry or mm-hmm. how do they incorporate marriage into that and marriage being this kind of economic proposition mm-hmm. I think in this film it very much touches on that as well yeah um, so, yeah, I think that was a, a very interesting strand of the movie, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, where we say that we don't think it's like a rallying cry for, like, you know, um, a rallying cry for... Um, how would I say this? It does make queer people, gay people, lesbian people more visible, absolutely, in having a film where they they are centre stage. But it's not to do it for a particular reason. It's just to use them as a vehicle for the storytelling. And the real storytelling that I would say that Celine Scammer wants to do is to talk about women's place in today and in that time where their art and their voices and their gazes and their relationships and their friendships are seen as less than. So she's putting those at the forefront and she's talking about the feminine experience through the story between, love story between two women and then the friendship story between three women and then, you know, the various other actors who come through the film. I think that's what she's trying to do and rather it, than being a, you know, rather mm. than like, you know, speaking out in, in a different way. Yeah, and I was just thinking just then that you actually literally could have transplanted that film into the present day. And I sadly don't think you'd really have to change anything. No, like, not hugely. You know, I, I still feel as though um, you, you could have had that same plot play out, play out uh, which is not to say that obviously women's roles and women's opportunities have drastically improved since the 18th century. But I think the way, the way in the, the world which this film creates, as we said earlier, is not entirely enthralled to the conventions of that period yeah um and 
you know I'm sure she did have her reasons for setting it in, in the past and um it, but yeah it, it it has got that kind of as we said at the beginning sense of universality and yeah um that is you know also it's just as we you know we say it's just very romantic very beautiful yeah. film and like that is probably one of my favorite parts of it was that it was just gorgeous wasn't it and actually we haven't talked about the fact that you know at the end there's this like this part where um the painting that marianne the self-portrait she does of herself is in a, a page of eloise's book yes. and they just pick a random number 28 28 um and so she, you know, she's, you know, she's going to hold on to that forever, and it's going to be a reminder of the love that they shared. Um, while she's at this exhibition, the art exhibition, she sees a portrait of Eloise and her child, yeah. um, and she's like admiring it, looking at it, and then she sees that she has in the portrait Eloise has the um, book open slightly at page twenty eight, yeah, uh, which was just like oh, so cute. I know. So, so to track onto a couple of little funny things about this film before we finished, um, the child was her horrendously badly painted oh my god well it was definitely not as good a painting as marianne would have done no i know because eloise looks lovely and like you know slightly older with this kind of more like i'm a married woman hairstyle but this has this weird ugly child next to her and i'm like (laughs) this child is grim also um francesca told me a fun fact about the way that um so this film wasn't it was nominated in the golden globes category for best foreign language film yeah and it also won the queer palm at the Cannes film festival but it um, wasn't nominated. Eventually, it lost out to um, the new film Les Miserables. Not the old film Les Miserables, the new one. Yeah, because... this is for the Oscars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because as you said, what was it? That the French didn't think it was, what, sensual enough? Yeah, so there, there, was this, there was this quote um, in an interview with Celine Sciamma um, in The Guardian where she was talking about how, you know, it has the film, everything we've said, how the film is very universally mm-hmm. beloved. Um, but she said, in France, they don't find the film hot. They think it lacks flesh. It's not erotic. There we go. You can't please everybody, can you? You can't. Uh, Even the French. Um, I do find this quite amusing, considering the fact that, like... I mean, fine, there's no, like... I don't know, I'm trying to think of a film which had really graphic... I mean, it's not Outlander level, I suppose. No, it's not. But I think the French would find Outlander just, like, not gauche, um, like, just, like, trashy. Because it is a very... It does have... It does feel like a very French film, um, yeah, there's no it, nudity. There's well, one point where one of them has a mirror in, like on her vagina and they're like, oh, I'm going to... Yeah, it's very, like, graphic in that way. Well, also, another interview um, I read with the director, Celine Sharma, is um, she was talking about a bit like what we said earlier about how the, how the movie is about this self-contained time in their lives yes. and this romance that doesn't necessarily offer a future but does offer freedom. Sure. She compared it to Titanic and talked about oh, how much she loved Titanic. James was like, Cameron! Amazing. It's so she, she was saying how, you know, obviously in that movie you do feel as though the time with Jack has changed Kate Winslet's character yeah. for the better insofar as she is offered this freedom and this escape from the path that she would otherwise have gone down. But anyway, I just thought that was quite a funny That's comparison. Great comparison. <laughs> so oh, there well, we go. We would certainly um, recommend watching this. Um, it's it's a great little... Chill. It's very, like... I don't know. It's very um, just, like, calming, I felt. Like, you don't... Uh, it's like there is a, a few instances where like a ghost, a ghostly Eloise appears, and you're a bit like, oh, okay, spooky. But it's very like um, nice, I think, because it's really about these three women having like I said this a pre enlightenment era sleepover because there are no men around. I found that quite enjoyable. Really. Yeah, there are no men in the film yeah. aside from right at the end, a random man is sitting at a table, but you don't know who. I he think is. he's like a postman. Isn't yeah, he? <laughs> he's certainly no one of significance no. either. Um, you know. 
I think Eloise's husband to be. I don't think it's ever even mentioned by name. No. Um, so yeah, it, it's very absorbing and very kind of in the way that the romance is very self-contained as a yes. movie. Um, so yeah. yeah, absolutely recommend it. And we would love to hear your thoughts um, on yeah. the film. Um, any other uh, movies that maybe it reminded you of or mm. any movies perhaps by the director that you've seen that you would recommend that we also watch. Um, we'd love to hear about them. Um, and yeah, anything else that you have to say? Yeah, brilliant. Get in touch. So uh, we're now on to our chit chat, chat chit, chat chit. Just like chat chit. I'm that's what it is. But yeah, obviously, this is the section where we just chat about things we've been liking, um, what we've been doing this week in terms of you know any culture stuff we want to mention. Uh, we normally do it from our classic question and answer format. So, <laughs> Francesca, what have you? What do you want to talk about this week? Well, so after our introduction last week where we talked about Parasite and about me Googling, was it scary? <laughs> after my Googling, I decided that I was probably going to be okay. Okay. Um, and obviously I very much wanted to see it given how talked about it has been. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, everyone I know was like, yeah, you got to go see it. Aside from Helena, obviously. <laughs> no, I, I, but, probably, I probably won't go and see it. I, I'm too honest with you, but... Well, um... Yeah, so I went to see it on Monday um, and uh, the cinema was completely packed, which, you know, for a Monday night is quite interesting. Yeah, especially after it's been released for a little while, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's been out for a month um, mm. and pr- prior to that was obviously out in, you know, kind of preview setting. So it's, yeah, it's certainly not brand new, but clearly everybody has had that thought of like, yeah. this movie has been so talked about, I've got to go see it for myself. Um, and going to a packed cinema is so much fun. I feel like it's quite, it's quite actually quite rare that you yeah. go to the cinema and it's completely packed. Like, yeah. you know, it might be quite busy, but mm. this was like totally packed people of all ages um and uh, i went with my brother and he was like don't worry i've got a seat at the end of the aisle so if you need to run out you can run out <laughs> which was really sweet so but also sweet. i was then like oh my god am i gonna have to run out like it kind of planted that i was like i've never had to do that in the cinema before that would be the first. <laughs> so afraid i had to run away <laughs> what would i do just like run home i don't know oh my god <laughs> you just like trucking it down the street being like i'm too afraid of this film yeah anyway uh so spoiler alert that did not happen <laughs> jessica did not run away from the cinema. <laughs> no well the f- so first things first it's not a horror film like so it is very much a thriller okay um and there are um horrific things in the film um but they are, it's not um a monster in the straightforward way mm. um it is obviously an incredible film and I was saying to you earlier like you don't need me to tell you that no. like no one needs me to tell them that Parasite is a really good film but it is indeed a very good film um and actually one thing you know I was thinking afterwards about the fact that it won best Oscar over the other movies that were also nominated for mm. best picture and I was thinking like actually one thing it does it does do uh, among many other things is it brings together things that were particularly good about the other Best Picture nominations, but in one movie. So, for example, um, it has this very well-choreographed, fast-paced dialogue, which is not dissimilar from Little Women. Obviously, it's a completely different film, but I think you get this sense that it is meticulously put together Mm -hmm. and the way everybody says their line and when they say their line and when things happen is very similar to Little Women. Um, That kind of filming style of things being very um, to the point and uh, you being taken on this journey is not dissimilar from 1917. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this sort of 
uh, undertone of like domestic drama and family drama and family dynamics, which you could compare to Marriage Story. Yeah. It's also very aesthetically pleasing in that the main house um, that a lot of the action takes it takes place in is like a beautiful house mm-hmm. um very creepy but also very beautiful um <laughs> uh, which you know you could compare to like once upon a time in hollywood so and then the dark humor maybe jojo rabbit you know i've got all like, of them in there yeah nice. I know. this is my one intelligent comment about the film i'm like this is what i'm gonna trot out to everybody <laughs> but You're no right. i do feel as though and it's very rare that you see a film that actually does do like several of those like really things, really yeah. impressive things uh-huh. really well yeah. and in a way that is also just like it's a really good it's a really just like enjoyable film like it's not kind of it's not difficult to watch or mm-hmm. um hard to engage in like you're immediately swept up in it um yeah. so yeah like I, I can very much see why it has been so successful and uh yeah if you, so if you like me are uh, well worried about seeing it because you don't like horror films I think you'll probably be okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I mean, I probably won't see it because I don't like... So I actually went to see... Um, I did went to see. So um, I actually watched uh, Bong Joon-ho's um, Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. The other day with my boyfriend, who I told about it, and then he read about it and decided he wanted to watch it. Mm. Um, he... I knew he'd like it from the beginning just because he loves this kind of stuff. Um, so Snowpiercer is um, very Bong Joon-ho. Like, I imagine it's kind of like Parasite in that it's basically like taking a situation which you can definitely see happening and playing out to its conclusion. Right. Right. So they're on this, like, to the, the, the characters, you know, the last humanity, we tried to stop climate change by cooling the earth down with a special chemical. It went too far, froze the earth. There is one train that circumnavigates the earth full of, like, Murder on the Orient Express style classes, okay. um, which houses the last humanity, right? And it's like a self-sustaining like economy inside. And there's a whole bunch of people who live at the back end who have a horrible life, and they rebel and storm to the front. Mm. And there's a lot of like need of questioning of like knowing your place. And at one point, a character played by the wonderful Tilda, Swin- Tilda Swinton demonstrates the stupidity of not sticking to your place by putting a shoe on someone's head and saying you wouldn't put a shoe on a head a shoe belongs on the foot you see this you know very visual mm-hmm. and uh, it's very very parasite like i would probably argue because basically he's trying to make a social commentary through this like situation which might seem outlandish but actually you could imagine actually happening mm-hmm. and the human reactions are kind of quite believable for me i thought it straight too far into like characters monologued the whole time in that film and there was a lot of blood and gore mm. and to an extent where I was a bit like okay it's getting unrealistic for me but I did definitely see what he was trying to do but Snowpiercer wasn't thriller it was more very very suspenseful like it mm. took a long time for stuff to happen sometimes and that's one thing I can't stand is suspense um I fast forward my way through books um and films sometimes I'm not proud of it because <laughs> I just can't stand suspense I just want to know I'm very impatient in that sense well, my boyfriend loved it he loved it being on the edge of his seat you know yeah that's interesting because in a way I didn't it, it is suspenseful parasite but very much towards the end of the movie slash second half of the movie like yeah. the first half of the movie is almost it's quite comic because you yeah. know this family are like ingratiating themselves in this other family in ways that are like quite outlandish but also yeah. are succeeding yeah um so i think you kind of almost well i felt as though i'd got lulled into this like false sense of security even though in the back of my mind i was like this is not going to work <laughs> this is not going to <laughs> work out. Happen. Um, and something does happen but it's very much it's definitely probably not what you would think so so yeah maybe when it comes out uh, you should I'll watch it I with the lights on. Yeah, yeah brill i mean i mean again i will not i will not at all discredit bong joon ho's uh, capability as a director and i also think his 
ability coming from a non-Western film background and calling the Oscars a local award ceremony. I just love it. I think Hollywood needs to get a kick up its butt saying you are not the only film centre that exists. So I like, I really like the fact that like Bong Joon-ho is making it, as many others are, is make, are making a big name for, um, you know, uh, Asian Korean specifically cinema it's like the Train to Busan movie that everyone was talking about mm. with zombies on a train like people loved that and it's great because you know he, ha- he has a different perspective from growing up in a different side of the world different culture and being able to have films that are recognised for what they can tell you is really great and he's a great director as well which is why these actors want to work with him as well and I do think it's interesting as like a little side note because obviously the movie we just discussed um, obviously it was a French French director but it isn't it's in the French language so it's not in English mm-hmm. um, I think you could probably make the point that now that we're, we're all exposed to far more culture from across the world than we probably used to be mm-hmm. via streaming platforms mm-hmm. primarily, um, it's so much easier for you to like get really into like a Spanish language show or like um, watch I want, a movie. I that, love it. There's this Korean drama called Mr. Sunshine, which is completely insane. I love it. Yeah. It's great. But yeah. probably like 10 years ago, you'd have struggled to watch it because you just wouldn't have found the means. Like yes. It would have been hard for you. You're so right. I think that maybe a sort of side product of that of that is that it is meaning that people are like much more open to watching films with subtitles yes. or films that they maybe just would not have otherwise mm-hmm. watched um, yeah, right. which is great like you know so portrait of a lady on fire has been like all over my twitter timeline i'm like oh that's really cool given it you know it's in no way a niche film but like it is a, a french-speaking film which maybe in the past or you know and some people probably still would maybe like write it off and not want to watch the subtitles but mm. you know i think for one thing actually there wasn't that much dialogue so you'd probably be fine <laughs> lots, of, lots of looking <laughs> lots of looking but but yeah anyway um yeah, so that's what I was enjoying. How about you? For me, um, well, I actually... So we have actually thrown Outlander a tiny bit under the bus, I think maybe in past episodes, in saying that it lost our attention because of certain plot lines and story choices made of season four. Um, but I decided... Uh, I think it was... I decided I think it was last week... Um, to give it another go. I was just, like, determined to sort of, I don't know, see what happened. Um, So I I basically have binge-watched all of season four of Outlander in the past week and a half, I would say. And actually, I'm coming back out of it thinking that I would be sort of, like, driven away by um, certain plot lines and choices in this season. Um, Everything, the the certain things I didn't think I would enjoy, I did not enjoy. Absolutely, Mm. and I've said this to you before. But the rest of it, I don't know. I'm beguiled with Outlander again. And I think, for one thing, Outlander is so strong with respecting the cultures they portray, right? So they they have Native Americans in this season because the Frasers are now hanging out in America, of course, building Frasers Ridge, their lovely home in North Carolina. But they're coming across the fact that they are settlers and they are taking Native, Native land. Mm. Um, and those issues are ones that in the upcoming American Revolution, which is going to come later in the show, um, the show cannot ignore. Um, and actually they've cast lots of Native Americans to be in the show. Um, uh, they have um, the Cherokee tribe and the Mohawk tribe um, um, represented. And they actually are all played by First Nation Canadians. 
So they were played by Indigenous people, mm-hmm. which is great for one thing. Um, and they also, um, uh, the Mohawk language is not spoken very widely anymore, but they got somebody who knew it to write the Mohawk language script. And then all the actors learned it phonetically. Mm-hmm. So actually, one thing great thing they do is they represent Native American culture, I think, arguably as sensitive as is maybe possible for a big TV show big, you know, HBO stars TV show. Mm. So that's one great thing that I think Outlander tends to do. They tend to be very thorough in the way they represent cultures. Um, And also um, the costuming as ever is absolutely fantastic. And the emotional labour of the actors um, and the ways in which they make you believe... Like, you know, the main characters of Jamie and Claire have had the burden of taking you through four seasons now of believing in their relationship so much that you want to see them happy and you understand that all the decisions they make are because of each other. And this continues, you know, in this in this season, um, there's things like Jamie's offered, you know, Jamie uh, basically stands between the regulators, who are the ones who will begin the American Revolution against the king, and then the actual governor of North Carolina who could offer him land and safety. Um, he's between the two of them because, you know, his old friend Murtaugh, who turns up, is himself a regulator because he's been living as a farmer in North Carolina and experiencing the pain of the taxes of the king, which he argues are being used to prop up the um, general's lovely house. Um, and Jamie says when Murtaugh asks him to join him, which, you know, you'd think that season one, Jamie, would be like, yes, rebel against the king. Like, actually, mm. you know, I'm Scottish. It's something that I definitely want to do. I want to protect the common people. Um, he definitely still does, but actually now his decisions are coloured by Claire and his family. So he says, I'm taking the side of the king because I need that land and I need him to support me and I need to establish a f- safe place for my family mm. to grow up, to to be, um, which I think is really interesting. And again, it's a choice that like wouldn't make sense unless you really believed in the Claire-Jamie dynamic. So fortunately, I found from watching season four, the linchpin that everything else swings around, that centre relationship is really strong. Yeah. And the character of Claire, who I've always said to you is really unique, um, maintains her uniqueness and stays true to her character. Um, you know, she's already assimilated very well into this, you know, 18th century world, but she actually does 16th century world. It's 18th century world. 1700s. It's 1600s. It's the 1700s, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 1700 world, um, she assimilates very well, but she also maintains who she is. So, um, and the historical setting is also very well done. And they have this great, these great bits of the show where they're trying to build a homestead from the ground up. And I really like that too, actually. Aside from, the, you know, the, the habitual violence that Outlander kind of makes too much use of in order to further plots. Um, you know, the, you know, the rape of Jamie and the Blackjack Randall story, um, all the chaos and brutality that Claire and other characters have to go through in order to further plot lines that's still a problem but that's not a fault of the show as you said that's more of a fault of you know the story writing from years ago um but this you get to see like Jamie and Claire actually trying to build a home together rather than just running all over the country getting pursued by people Mm -hmm. and always being upset all the time so I quite enjoy that because it does fit with the you know you want to see their lives move on and you do get to and you get to see a bit more of like homie Jamie being like a dad and a husband and like getting to do those things he didn't get to do for like the whole of se- half of season three for most so, of his life really for most of his poor life because they're now like 60 but... yeah well they don't look 60 <laughs> no. I mean at one point so a child their grandchild has now been born um, and they do not look like grandparents in any way <laughs> put him on a wig with some grey bits in it does not anyway but next season the first episode is already out i imagine maybe the second one does too actually because they release it weekly on amazon over here um promises to have more ridiculous wigs more of the characters back in the fold um and more chaos i think um, i think the american revolution is going to start 
blowing in strong and Jamie and Claire are going to have to choose a side and then inevitably one of them will nearly die or will actually maybe die and then turn out not to be dead. And then I think we maybe... She's still writing other books, so there might be at least five yeah, more seasons. <laughs> but at least maybe maybe she's maybe this time she's more regulated by her editors because she's actually maybe I don't know. I mean, I feel like she must have established a you know a degree of uh... yeah. I mean, she does consult on the show. One thing I love about the show, which continues from season one all the way to season four, is that Diana Gabaldon has written Jamie as her sexual fantasy, right? Like. I mean, it's like Edward Kahn is Stephanie Mayer's weird Mormon fantasy and Jamie Fraser is Dana Gabaldon's fantasy, right? Mm. Sorry, Dan, if you're listening, you're not. But if you we are... We definitely said that before. <laughs> I probably have. Um, and that's not to say he's a terrible man. He's a lovely man, wonderful man. We love Jamie Fraser. He's great, already established. But he's, there are things that he says to Claire in like the heat of like passion or romance, right? Which are mostly to do with like the whiteness of her skin. Well, the, or One like, time he compares her hair to like a deer's back yeah or like the moving of some water and it's always like oh you're something or breasts and things like that and like the problem is is the lines probably sound great when they're written in your head and you write (laughs) them out and you're like oh this sexual like 18th century man is saying wonderful things that like would sound weird to the modern ear right like if my boyfriend said that to me i'd be like what um unfortunately it just doesn't come across and i know the writers include those lines verbatim from the book because they're very jamie like that's what the fans love about him most is his like Mm. romantic pronouncements but god sam hewan who plays jamie fraser tries his darndest to make those lines sound not cringy and he does not succeed unfortunately (laughs) no fault on you sam hewan but you just don't. And every time you can tell he's gearing up to say one and you're like, you can see Sam being like, oh God, I'm going to have to say it. And like, Claire doesn't have to say half this stuff. That's true, yeah. You know what I mean? But like, Jamie, he has to because he's Jamie. And no one else has to say things like this. Just Jamie. And they get annoyed um, that, you know, that the book fans, if those lines are not, don't appear. Yeah, you know, and if like, those scenes aren't exactly yeah. how they thought they would be. So, so. yeah, they're not, they can't really win there, can no, they? No, they can't. But Sam tries his darndest. Um, you know, uh, anyway, there's just, I can't think of an example right now, and nor can I do the accent, but it's just, they, it doesn't stop, which is quite well, nice. Well, there was that line that he said, um, oh no, let's not include that. We'll leave it there. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that to your imagination, yeah, dear so this listeners. Could, this could get too much, but um, uh, that's it. Yeah, I was going to say something else. Oh, yeah, are you going to watch the new series, do you think? I think I might leave it a little bit right. and then see if I can, like, gather some episodes. Because so, Francesca said the other... No, actually, earlier, that it actually... The show lends itself to binging a lot better than it does to watching weekly because you just get more satisfaction from knowing what's going to happen. And I think maybe the difficulties of the plot line at times great on you less because the resolution comes more quickly yeah i think that's probably true because i was saying that uh, the first series i binged in that way and then since then had watched it kind of weekly and there was like a period where we would always watch it weekly together and like obviously that was fun but like yeah you'd have to kind of wait you always like felt like you were waiting for things i very much dropped off uh, and i definitely think i've already spoken about this on the podcast just to like why i didn't enjoy the most recent series so i don't know if i would pick back it get back into it i think you'd have to let me know whether you were enjoying the new season and whether i mean you I should. we've already heard good things about the new season thus far and they probably get to do a bit more with it because i think it's like season two is very good the last half particularly because i think they were less bound by the book Mm. um there were some things about season one they had to do um which arguably made it a bit difficult for them so i think and season three was fantastic too Mm -hmm. really enjoyed the last half of that didn't we so yeah i think that maybe season five they will have more 
leeway to do some more fun things. Though I have seen the wigs they wear. And in this season, Jamie has his little fringe and it's all very curly. And then I think in the next season, it's all like old man pushed back, which is annoying to me. So I hope he's more disheveled during the sexy scenes. But there's also less sexy scenes in this in this one. Part mostly because Jamie and Claire spend all of their time in public. So they're either in tents or in a shed or in a hovel or on the go. <laughs> in a hovel. Yeah, they have, they have no privacy at all. Um, yeah. So there's no sex, unfortunately. They do try and supplement it with a bit of Brianna Roger sex, but that's not what we're here for, is it? <laughs> no, we're not here for this. It's fine, but none of us are here for that. So come on. But maybe next season. On that note. When they have their on, own on bedroom. That, <laughs> that, 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 that little message from Helen is the Outlander writers. <laughs> well, we do know somebody who's an Outlander, a production runner yeah. on the Outlander set, don't yeah, we? So we, we do. Yeah. You shall remain nameless and you're not listening, but if you are, take heed <laughs> us. If you're right, drop us a text. Drop us a text. We, yeah, we'll like to talk to you. Anyway, <laughs> that's it from us from this this week. Um, I think we have a couple of interesting things coming up in the next few weeks, don't we? Do. We? we definitely have some, well, we can confirm that we have some exciting book-related episodes coming up, having mm-hmm. just done three weeks of movies which hopefully you've enjoyed but yeah it would be fun to move on to a different medium this time Um, and as always you can connect with us on social media we have a twitter which is at real llw we generally announce when our podcasts are coming out on there and just generally tweet about things we don't have time to talk about something we'll tweet it on there we might tweet some links to the articles we've mentioned today if you want to read them Um, we also have a uh, instagram and Instagram, uh, loves labors watched, no punctuation or change the lowercase letters. Um, and there you can see what we're doing just generally, mm-hmm. not day to day, but you know, close as. Um, and you can also email us if you want to. We have an email, uh, loves labors watch at gmail.com, uh, business or non-business inquiries on there. I said personal last episode and I don't want to repeat that again. No, no personal inquiries. Thank you. And that again, is all lowercase. Um, and if you have a question, a comment, anything you think we missed, if you disagree with us even, we will not ignore you. We will just follow you away into our hate mail section, which is currently empty because I don't think we're important enough to borrow hate mail. <laughs> cool, and we'll see you um, in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.